Hello, I'm Ken Bruce. I appeared as a guest on My Time Capsule, and after that I had to give up a job I'd had for 46 years. <sighs> anyway, they want me to tell you that they've started a thing called Acast Plus, where for a small monthly fee you can get the podcast ad-free. For me, I think the ad's are the best thing in it. That Fenton Stevens, he does drone on a bit. Anyway, whatever you like, do something and have a go at it. ACAS Plus, my time capsule. Thanks, Ken. Charming. Anyway, to get my time capsule ad-free and for a bonus my time capsule, the debrief episode every week, subscribe to ACAS Plus. Details in the description of this episode. Thanks. Bloody Ken Bruce, what a cheek. Hello, welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and in this podcast I talk to various guests about the five things from their life that they would like to preserve in a time capsule. They pick four things that they cherish and would like to keep safe, but they also pick one thing that they rather regret, something they wish they could get rid of from their life, something they can bury in the ground and never have to think about again. My guest this week doing just that is the actor Jeremy Swift, who famously plays the director of football operations, Leslie Higgins, in the multi-Emmy winning comedy Ted Lasso. In fact, he was recently nominated himself for an Emmy for Outstanding Supporting Actor in that show. He was also Maggie Smith's butler, Spratt, in Downton Abbey. He's been in the film Gosford Park, the historical drama Amazing Grace, Mary Poppins Returns, Vanity Fair, Foyle's War, The Durrells, National Treasure, The Crimson Field, Being Human and Roman Polanski's Oliver Twist as Mr Bumble. He was in the sitcom The Smoking Room and the film Downhill, which he talks about in this podcast. Jeremy spent the first part of his career almost exclusively working in the theatre, having studied drama at the Guildford School of Acting, working with companies such as the Kickstart Theatre Company and The People Show. He acted at the National Theatre in the 1990s alongside David Tennant and Richard Wilson, a guest we have coming up soon on this podcast, in the play What the Butler Saw. So, a prime example of a highly talented actor whose skills have been recognised more and more as he's got older. Hope for us all then. Right, let's dive in and find out what Jeremy Swift would choose to put in a time capsule. I'm going to start with the thing I want to get rid of because... Yeah, you just get the kind of negative out of the way first, you know what I mean? Yeah. And not dwell on it too much because it is what it is. But I think I've been, I considered Donald Trump <laughs> and then I thought, well, you know, it's putting a person in a time capsule, loathsome though he is and so uh, damaging as he is, it's more about circumstances and what leads up to that kind of thing. And then I d dwelt on passwords, which are, I, <laughs> you know, intrusive. But I think below passwords, it's data collection and algorithms that kind of are separating us. And I feel that's just incredibly damaging to people because we're locked into devices and the use of devices Saying I want to get rid of phones is 
You know, there's a duality with phones because they have helped save people's lives. Mm -hmm. They have unmasked people who have been corrupt or murderers or whatever. So, you know, there are huge benefits to communication. But I think the damage that's done is, is the whole thing about data collection. That's a thing that divides us and puts us in bubbles and yeah. makes us more combative than we probably otherwise would be. It exacerbates and fuels the fire of people's negativity. Mm. And I think we should be trying to avoid that because <laughs> <laughs> it's, not, it's not healthy. No. Particularly in relatively peaceful democracies, we should know better. It is important to hear the other side of an argument, isn't it? Absolutely, yes. Even if you disagree with it. Yeah, and try and digest it. It is very hard to do, and particularly when people have such strong and seemingly aggressive opinions. Mm. But we have to find out why they're saying that, where they're coming from, what the damage is maybe that's been done to them or, or what they don't understand. And I have to be open enough to understand that myself, you know. Yes. You know, that's the whole thing about the woke thing, I guess, really, is... is um, And I find, you know, I have problem with that word even. And I sort of think I've been radical in the past when I was young and I embraced feminism when I was in my early 20s and went on um, anti-nuke, you know, all those marches that we we went on in the... Yeah, you were involved with quite radical theatre, weren't you? Well, a little bit, yeah. Um, But certainly (laughs) some very... uh, Crazy theatre as well. Mm. My first job was um, talking woke. It was quite a wake-up call for me because I thought I was quite political, but the people who were involved were... They were not from drama school. It was a, it was a company that just went around prisons and borstals and entertained. It was, it was literally just, you know, songs and sketches that we'd nicked from not the 9 o'clock news or whatever, <laughs> you know, at the time. But the people who were in it were... Quite academic, you know, and you play Botticelli in the van, you know, and I think, who is this? And it had been John Locke, uh, the, the philosopher from the 18th century. And I thought, I've never heard of him, you know, because I've, <laughs> I've just been to a drama school playing silly games for three years. So that was quite a wake-up call and quite stimulating. And I'd been in Guildford as well, which, although it's very close to London, is, you know, sort of conservative and, you know, a little bit sleepy compared to... London radicalism of that time, you know. Mm. Do you think that actually these algorithms, the way that they separate people, do you think there's any control over it? Or do you think it's all just built into a programme? I don't understand how it works, really, because I think that quite often we get shown things that we want to see. So they, the more we choose something, the more we're led down that road. But every now and again, they will throw in something that is completely opposite in order to stir us up, as it were. I think they do that, but I think it's probably minimal, isn't it? I know that um, Brian Eno, who has I've uh, you know hero worshipped my whole life, mm. when he was younger, he would go to the library and he would choose a random sort of um, couple of letters, and so he'd find a book that he wouldn't have otherwise picked up. Oh, and I think that's just you know that's a, a, a great strategy for widening your knowledge and and mm. uh, you know getting to know the world 
a little better rather than mining uh, you know we're, we're all guilty of it mining the same shaft as it mm-hmm. were but yeah i think you're right about that mike but i think they do rule quite a lot i mean i was talking to nick mohammed who's a really funny writer and uh, comic that i've been working with recently and he's got a show called intelligence for um sky mm-hmm. and i said when will you know if you get a, a third season and then he said uh, oh it's it's literally an algorithm he said, we'll have a piece of um, paper from the computer. Wow. It'll tell us about audience figures and feedback and all that kind of thing. Oh, my God. So, in fact, that's something that you could deceive if you wanted to. If you know that that's the process, you could just get everybody you know to say, look, it's really important that you write really great show, the best show, and you just put it on the disc, you know, medium, that's what they take notice of. Yes, I don't, I don't know quite how they do it, but I know that... You know, there is an exactitude that is from the... Not, it's not just feedback. It's not like old-fashioned, um, you know, how the BBC used to work out figures or whatever from a small amount of people, you know, 1,200 people. Now with... Because I've been doing the show for Apple, and yeah. one of the execs told me that Apple will know exactly <laughs> how many people have watched it, just literally from the connection Whatever it is, whatever it is, two million five hundred thirty-two thousand ones, you know, blah, 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 you know. Yeah, and who they are. <laughs> yeah, no, no. <laughs> and what they had for breakfast, and what colour underpants <laughs> they're wearing. <laughs> exactly. I know. Yeah, I suppose what I'm saying it is it is quite scary, but mostly destructive. We're shown the polar side of what we think deliberately to stir us up in a way to make us believe what we believe more strongly because we feel under threat from it. Whereas, in fact, there are probably very few people that we should be worried about. Most people have got a tempered view of things. Pretty much, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I I think you're absolutely right. But we cultivate this boiling fury and, um, you know, and when there is an opportunity, like at a Trump rally, for it to be stirred (laughs) up, then it'll it'll explode. I knew I was right. Yes, yes. We're all together (laughs) on this, you know. I feel that that whole thing started with music journalism. People talked about getting a hard-on behind a typewriter, I remember, in the 70s. Because although I used to read The Enemy all through my youth, um, until I was about (laughs) 36 or something, I think, um, but that's kind of when all that vitriol really kicked off. I'm sure there were people, there have been um, journalists who who have gone that route before, but not quite to the extent as the enemy did. When they didn't like something, they went overboard. I've always heard enemy as being enemy. Enemy, yes. And that's just my brain. I'm sorry. I always look for the, the other meaning of things. <laughs> it's a curse, I have to say. Everything I see, I try to see a different way. <laughs> <laughs> that's very healthy. Well, I'm not sure. My wife says, stop it! Please! (laughs) Jeremy, I'm going to take those algorithms and I'm going to drop in into the equation something that completely messes them up. Oh. And that's the end of them. Okay. Something from John Locke, I think, possibly. (laughs) (laughs) Great. So that's item number one. What's your second item? My second one is... Well, it's, it's quite an interesting concept, Mike. What the criteria is for the time capsule because I know we're storing things but I you know I want to think for why um, <laughs> and um, and partly I think 
it might be amnesia, I think. So I think there are sort of, um, <laughs> there are things that are, I think need to be preserved and I need, and maybe other people need to remember is, is what I think. And I know that some people have put in countries or land masses, which is sort of godlike um, <laughs> and interesting, <laughs> a bit sci-fi. So yes, I'm, I will have one of those, but I'm going to kick off with, uh, there's, there's a couple of things that are connected with my parents. And the first one is um, my parents are both uh, dead now. And my mum died last year. My dad died when I was very young. And I have a synthesizer that he had and I I had as well from the 70s. It's quite a basic one. It's not like, um, it's not one of those ones that Stevie Wonder had, you know, <laughs> that was like took up half a room. It's quite a basic one. And it had things like frog sound on it and things like yeah. that. And um bassoon and uh, you know it was a bit like a third manual as my dad would say to an electric organ which he had because he he had that as, as well but basically it, it sort of just reminds me of my dad and my connection with him my parents were both music teachers and um i loved synthesizers and i still do and i'm fascinated by the possible endless combinations of sounds and effects that you can have from some of them some of them are a bit locked down and we used to make up kits from i don't know whether you remember a magazine called practical electronics i do yes i don't think i ever bought it yeah and from the kind of um ads at the back you could send away for circuit boards and make them up. Yes. So we would make uh, white noise units and things <laughs> like that. And, you know, you know, literally have a bunch of um, resistors and transistors and um, you put them together and, um, you know, and you, you could put a microphone through them and um, do a Dalek voice and stuff like that, you know. <laughs> yeah. So um, that was a great time. And uh, we did buy one synthesizer from a guy who'd put it together but in fact, when we got it home, it only played one note. <laughs> I think it went up two tones. So it went, uh, uh, you know, all the way up, whatever. But you could have different sounds, so I, you know. But um, it, yeah, so that connection with my dad is really important to me. You know? And I think he was really quite amazing person. He taught music and maths. He... Uh, was into computers like I remember when I was in the 60s when I was a kid we t- we went to um see a, a, a computer that took up the whole floor of an office building in uh, Middlesbrough and it was like a sort of a post office kind of like a solitaire connection that you know connected different circuits by with a sort of different pegs you put in boards to right yeah to yeah. fire up different circuits and um and you know I can't remember what we went for. I don't think it was just to find out an equation or something <laughs> or, you know, pi. But uh, I was just fascinated when he told me that, you know, and of course all of that would probably be a small part of your phone now. You yes, know? quite. Um, and he started up a computer club in the late 70s for his sixth form. and When nobody had computers. No, no, I know that, well, some schools and offices did... That's why you come to use them, you know. It, it'd be, be, you know, the sort of a portal into <laughs> another world, you know, in these in these uh, places. So, did he also play keyboard? He did. Yeah, he played um, the organ in churches and at school. Mm. Obviously, when he was teaching, and he was um, 
When he was a kid, he lived not very far away from uh, the local ABC cinema. Uh-huh. And there were still a lot of silent movies then that were kind of like the B movies. Mm. So he would play the keyboard for those. Wow, really? God, that's amazing. So he came up on the organ. I'm not sure I'm not sure whether he had one of those, but uh, uh, he did play an organ, yeah. I remember that happening during uh, Saturday morning pictures when I was a kid. Oh, yes. They, they would have the oh, first yeah. thing, and then a bloke would come out of the stage on an organ and play away, and we would all boo and hiss and yeah. ridicule him and throw things. And then <laughs> somebody would say, Oi, stop it or you're out, you know, and it was great fun. Yes. <laughs> Um, oh, Saturday morning pictures, fantastic! <laughs> oh. But yes, of course, it's quite a it's quite a skill because uh, you're using your it's a bit like a drummer you're using all of your limbs. You know, you're yeah, you've got a, a pedal board like a helicopter pilot. I always think you use your feet for one thing and your hands for another. So you're... I, don't, I didn't realise helicopter pilots did that with, with their yeah. Things. Oh wow, that, I did not know that. I know we suddenly look at Prince William in a different light. <laughs> Somebody has to. Yeah. Um, So he passed all that on to you, did he, your dad? He did, but also I liked it, you know, and um, unfortunately I think a lot of the albums that he... (laughs) But he he was interested in sort of quirks of sound, you know. And so in the very early 70s, there were all these really quite terrible synthesizer albums with things where you'd have a voice going <laughs> you know really yes. awful kind of quasi goons kind of things you know and he would sort of enjoy those as much and i think oh no that's awful uh, but then what i really got into is when he did a an open university course and um one of the modules was 20th century music and um and that's when i listened to Karlheinz stockhausen and uh that was just an incredible ear opener mm. <laughs> for me but uh, yes he, he he was into all sorts of stuff and also a uh, fairground he used to had loads of albums of um fairground organs there was a period where we used to go to fairs in the middle of fields in the northeast anywhere yeah. because they they had a collection of fairground organs and they were amazing things they are extraordinary aren't they yeah yeah all those moving parts all from some great stack of things that used to unfold and go through the the controller well they were like computers really yeah well yes quite very early computers i remember standing when everybody's going around on the fairground yes standing watching this piece of paper come through yes and you could work out from the dots in it which instrument it was controlling the equivalent of a piano roll really Mm. um i have um I don't know what is going to happen. I have commissioned a script, a film script, about the late pianist, John Ogden. And um, he was just the most incredible uh, pianist. He, he he won the Tchaikovsky piano competition in Russia in, I think it was 1961. Mm-hmm. Um, but his entertainment was being brought up with uh, pianola and he would watch the piano roll go up. And later, how it sort of fed into his brain is incredible because he could sight-read the most incredibly complex pieces of music. And even if they would go way above and below the stave, he could read it. And, wow. he, you know, and it was at some incredible tempo as well. <laughs> and uh, it must have fed his brain, seeing this piano roll just rotating up. Yeah. You know, and how it connected with the, the music, yes. the sound. So it clicks in a part of your brain, I suppose, that, that normally wouldn't be active. Yeah, yeah. that was his... TV. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I always think that with anybody who reads music, I think that that's what's happened is they've made connections in their brain 
that really we all ought to be able to do. It's quite straightforward, really, music. It's only eight notes, isn't it? Uh, you know, so compared with reading, it's far less complicated. And you ought to be able to look at music and understand it. But because we've never been shown it when we were very small or had it explained to us when we were very small, That's right. it seems alien to us. It seems impossible. How can you possibly look at all those things and know what they mean? Yes. Whereas, in fact, we look at loads of words with lots of different letters and we know exactly what they mean. That's right. And different pronunciations uh, or silent consonants as well yeah. you know, uh, that, that, that we have. So, which you know, whew, gosh, English has got this such an amalgamation. Um, but yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, reading music is a language and mm. um, and it's a bit like, you know, if you're multilingual, you know, if you have a, a one French parent, one English parent, then you, it becomes natural to you, I guess. Yeah. That's something I really wish I could do because I'm, I'm, I'm very poor at languages. But um, yeah, I think it's getting it in. You do read music, do you? I do read music, yes, I do, yeah. So uh, John Ogden, tell me more about him. I'm very fascinated by these extraordinary virtuoso pianists. I, as a young man, fell in love with Vladimir Horowitz. Of it. Yes. He was the Rachmaninoff virtuoso, but I'm not familiar with John Ogden. Oh, um, well, John was brought up in uh, the Black Country and he went to Manchester School of Music in the 50s and with people like Harrison Burtwistle, in ah. uh, contemporaries. And he married Brenda Ogden, who was also a pianist. And I have talked to her, you know, and we've had a couple of conversations with her which is fascinating having read all about him and um he basically died very young he was hugely overweight and uh, smoked he worked incredibly hard toured sort of too much for his certainly for his health mm. and had a nervous breakdown in the 70s and and self-harmed horribly oh god but he was incredibly on the whole quite a placid person but he suffered from mental health problems mm. and could be surprisingly aggressive as well. But um, he continued to play superbly and played some incredibly, some of the most incredibly difficult piano music that has ever been written. He also composed as well. Mm. I've only heard a couple of his compositions, but I really like them. I love 20th century music. But yeah, yeah, incredible person. Well, we look forward to the film. Yeah, <laughs> of course, as these things do, it might take... Ten years. <laughs> I know. I'll give you time to put on some weight. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, bit by bit, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, lovely. Okay, we're going to put your dad's synthesizer yes. into the time capsule to remind you of all that. Yeah, absolutely. That's lovely. Great. Okay, so um, so what's your third thing, Jeremy? You said it was also associated with your parents, is that right? Uh, yeah, I might come to my mum a little bit later, but I think what I'll go for now is the colour green, but the, the colour green is receding on our planet because mm. of climate change. But um, as I grow older, I appreciate verdant vistas, and when I go to countries, or if I go to LA, for example, um, I know there are green parts of it, but there isn't much. It was a desert, you know, and it's very built up. And I always hugely appreciate it when I come back to to Blighty. <laughs> and uh, just as we're landing, just look at the greenness. It just makes me feel incredibly alive. Mm. And I just think it's the most important colour for this planet. Uh, yeah. <laughs> really, I mean, we'll always the oceans will always be there, I guess. But, um, yeah, it's very... It's very important. Yeah. I mean, as you say, the oceans may be there, they may be empty. The colour blue will still be there, but 
that green, I mean, yes, large parts of the world, it is receding at a terrible rate, either through deforestation or, as you say, climate change. So North Africa is turning into one huge desert. Absolutely is, yeah. And what will happen to South America at the the, the current rate is mm. just quite disturbing. I've got grandchildren, and so I'm absolutely with you on this. I think it's... Uh, we really have to do something, and quite urgently. Absolutely, yeah. I have too. Well, I've got one grandson, and you see how things change for children. And and also, we've tried as parents to make our kids aware of those kind of things. And, well, also just enjoy countryside, because we live in London, and the benefits, the freedoms of it, you know, mm. and how important it is. You know. Yes, and how easy it is to ignore, I think, actually, or to not even notice. Well, absolutely. It's difficult, isn't it? When, you, when you're younger, it's a challenge, I think, the countryside. <laughs> uh, I remember um, I was a big fan of punk when I was younger, and, and I remember the Sex Pistols had to go out into the countryside because they were being attacked quite a lot because people hated them, you know. <laughs> In an interview, I remember them saying, uh, Oh, we hate nature. <laughs> <laughs> it's boring. <laughs> and I remember thinking, yeah, it is <laughs> boring. God. Just, I think it was too, it's too scary for me. The, the, it was too, there was too much going on. I liked kind of sweaty, sexy, seemingly sexy sort of cities mm. and, and, you know, bars and bands and all that kind of thing. And I thought it had nothing for me at all. But, of course, it's, what it has is freedom of the mind when, you, you know, when you're in it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, it's poetic mm. and all that kind of great stuff. And I think it can happen now. I mean, my uh, wife just took my son, because I was working, and his friend off to the Lake District for a few days. And my son's friend said the same thing, said, I hate nature. <laughs> God. About, you know, and within about two or three hours, they were climbing up hills and running around. And, the, and they're like 17, they, you know, the, the, the key age for, for doing nothing, <laughs> you know. But it just <laughs> enlivened them. Yeah. So it's really important. It's really important that we just, God, stop destroying the planet. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's a very simple point to make. It's not something you can particularly argue against, I don't think. Yeah. For me, the time of year that I love most is when that green first appears. So I love spring when it suddenly bursts out and it's really yes. fresh. And I think, oh, yes, I've got months and months of this ahead. How lovely. I know. And you, I always have a sort of <laughs> ridiculously surprised attitude towards it. I'm, I always sort of think... What, again? <laughs> yeah. uh, how does he keep coming? Is it completely unscientific or anything? What? Oh, it's extraordinary. Uh, this, happened, uh, this happened kind of this time last year. Um, but, yeah, it is always a joy. And it is, you know, I also love autumn, the turn of the seasons in autumn, for mm. just because of the transition. I love seeing the transition of the seasons. Um, but um, But just as I was saying about, Kids, of course, there are loads of very, very green kids who are working hard to save the planet, but it's not everybody. And it is down to wealthy Western countries mm -hmm. who are, are aware of it, and uh, other poorer countries don't have that choice. No, quite. I mean, we have to give them the incentive. We have to say, look, it's worth your while. 
because it's unfair, really, for us to have been pumping muck into the air for 150 years in order to make ourselves wealthy and comfortable and then say to other people, well, I know you're only just starting on this journey, but you're not allowed to. Yes. That's not fair. So we have to say to them, okay, look, I tell you what, we'll give you some of the wealth we made from doing that in order that you don't do it. Totally, Mm? yeah. And stop sending them our crap as well and say, could you sort through that? Yeah, these old boats, can you just break them up on your beaches for us? Yes. (laughs) Mm. Anyway, there we are. We are responsible for it and therefore have to take responsibility. I think that's the truth. Absolutely, Mm. yeah. Okay, lovely. We will put the colour green in there to constantly remind us of how beautiful it is. Yes. Okay, what's next? We're going to take a short break, as all podcasts of any length do, but we'll be back with you in no time. See you soon. Hello again. Right, that's the end of the break. So let's return to Jeremy Swift and find out what the fourth thing is that he would like to preserve in a time capsule. Leading into that, and probably the same, really, (laughs) is is the Lake District. I love the, uh, as I say, the godlike idea of um, carving it up like in a game of Sims or something like that. Um, uh, over the years, I've, I've had different experiences of the Lake District. The first time I went, I was 10 or 11, and I wasn't, uh, you know, I wasn't even a teenager, but I wasn't that interested. I think it was the first holiday that I was like, oh, God. <laughs> and I think the most exciting thing for me was hearing that Hawkwind's Silver Machine was number two in the charts. Um, and I was just, that that made my week. That's the only thing I really remember for that, <laughs> that holiday. Completely wasted on a grumpy, spotty, specky, 10 or 11-year-old, whatever I was. But I've been there several times since, and one of the best times I had was an indie film that I did about uh, eight years ago called Downhill, Mm. um, which is uh, one of the most enjoyable projects I've ever been involved with. Um, And sadly, (laughs) it's not really heard of. It's not not even on Netflix or anything in the the cupboard under the stairs in Netflix. But it's a really, really great British film. And it's about four blokes who do the coast-to-coast walk and, you know, have rows, get drunk, all that kind of stuff. So although we didn't do the whole walk, we hit on key parts of, um, or popular parts, because there's many uh, ways to do it. Mm. Do you know about it, Mike? I'm yes, sure I you do, do, yes. From, yeah, it's yeah. something I've always wanted to do, actually. Yes. I love walking, and I love walking in the countryside. So, yeah, all I have to do is yeah. is get off my ass. But <laughs> do I? No. Anyway, let's carry on. <laughs> well, I think probably, I think it's quite a common thing for a kind of male bonding exercise or or male fighting, I don't, you know, just depending on uh, how you uh, go about it. But I, well, number one, I enjoyed filming so much outside. It was so freeing and um, so much more exciting than a studio, really, where, because there was a limited crew and there were... Uh, there wasn't really any lighting, you know. <laughs> so uh, it was it was God's work. Uh, but we did go through the Lake District, basically. Mm. And um, apart from being attacked by midges, I really, really just loved it. And I was just awestruck by it. And um, I've been there with the family since, actually, because I've said, what about the Lake District? <laughs> I know it's a long way away. I know. Um, <laughs> and uh, going there, it's just 
Well, I just think it's paradisical. It's our sort of Garden of Eden. Mm. It is fabulous that we've preserved it, nearly all of it, because it's it's absolutely surrounded by huge conurbations. Yes. And I think we could easily have destroyed it, particularly, you know, during the Industrial Revolution. But we God, yes. somehow didn't. Yeah, we could have had loads of water mills and, oh, God, yeah. Oh, mm. yeah. Uh, absolutely, but it's remained this, well... God bless those people who did do that. Almost certainly the extremely wealthy people who owned it. <laughs> yes, of course, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The great parts of our countryside that are still there are there because somebody wanted to do, well, go hunting in it. Yes. Mm. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, no, not necessarily for, uh, yeah, sound reasons. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. And, and also they didn't want to let... Poor people into it. I don't don't want that, that smelly factory near me. Yeah, some industrialists, of course, were lower middle class people who who worked their way up because they could see the benefit and probably exploitation of people. <laughs> how easy it was in in cities, you know. Mm. But you know, I, that's. I mean, I was brought up with huge amounts of industry near me. I mean, there was literally a steel factory at the end of my road. And it had the sirens for the end of the shifts that were the same sirens that were used for air raids. Yeah. You know, which freaked my mum out in particular. <laughs> they literally had the... It was so loud. Yeah. yeah. Where was that, Jeremy? That was in Stockton-on-Tees. Ah, right. And um, I remember going to my friend's house who lived in Yarm and I would walk along the road and it was just... It was just all factories. They're all gone now. Mm. But sometimes you'd be walking down a road and a smell from something was so bad, it was like a cloud of... Uh, and you would just go, run, run. Oh, it's gone. It's gone. Like, oh, what was that, man? You know. Yeah. Um, when those hooters went off, that great horde of people on bicycles with caps, do you remember that? When I was growing up in the 60s, 70s, you just see people walking with haversacks. Yeah. And I used to see my granddad. He'd work in, um, in one of the steelworks up the road. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was amazing. But now and again, and this is, this is something just so surreal, that you'd see a part of some, it must be some cooling tower or something like that, or some, something that was um, so enormous, it would cause, at the end of my road which led onto a dual carriageway, it would cause kids to go, either there's there's another bit of machinery going down the road and there'd be something that was like on the back of a massive truck that was police escorted (laughs) and it'd be like 30 feet in diameter and it would just tower above the houses. It was like something from a dream, you know, (laughs) Uh, and you never knew quite what it was. It was usually very big and very shiny, Mm. you know, and uh, metal. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. God. Different world. Yeah. (laughs) And then you compare that grimy mass of people all crammed in together and then you get that thing of (laughs) you spotty 11-year-old going out and go, oh, bloody hell countryside <laughs> yeah <I know. laughs> can't we go back home where it smells yeah uh, yeah it's extraordinary but i remember the tees the river tees was so incredibly polluted and now it isn't they had a real concerted effort to clean it up now there is salmon in it it used to be tins of salmon yeah <laughs> Yeah, rusty tins or so. Uh, uh, <laughs> I remember going on a school trip to um, a leather tanning yard, and then we went outside, and there were literally huge pipes with green 
liquid pouring out straight into the river. Yeah. I took pictures of it when I was a kid. God. Like a little green journalist. <laughs> Look what they do into the environment. <laughs> well, in order to counter that then, I'm going to put the Lake District in, but I'm also going to start a campaign to get downhill onto Netflix. Come on now. I know. Yeah, it is such a great film. Uh, and uh, And... Just briefly to touch on it again, it had a great script, but we improvised some of it as well. So we would do a version of this scripted scene and then do a, um, an improvised version of it. How brilliant. So you almost feel as if you're becoming the person you're playing. A little bit, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it certainly worked its way into it. I got quite grumpy because I, I think in three weeks, we, we were away for totally three weeks. We couldn't really come back. And um, I think we had something like, 16 different places we stayed in. So we didn't have any wardrobe person, so I had to, to remember what to wear that day from, <laughs> you know, the scene before. Yeah, so oh. that, yeah. Yeah, well, then you realise what these other people go through, the people who... Absolutely, who, yeah. yes. Oh, no, it makes you appreciate the whole team mm. properly, yeah. Yeah, and then when you go to do Apple TV, you suddenly go, oh, my God, this is amazing. <laughs> There's somebody for everything. <laughs> <laughs> What? My glasses? Yeah, thank you very much. <laughs> Brilliant. All right, that's it. That's into the time capsule of the Lake District. So we've got one final item, which I think you've said was something to do with your mum. Is that right? It is, yes. Um, I've got a little bit of it, which I can play you, oh, great. I think, here. Um, it's basically a, a 78 record that my mum did when she was 16. Wow. Uh, which was, oh, it would have been 1953 or 1954, I guess, that mm. she was 16. And it was, um, I think it was something that, a bit like the, uh, you know, a, um, a medical man, you know, or a snake oil salesman comes to town and uh, who, who would like to record their voice? It was one of those mm. kind of things. And it was, <laughs> it was in the, it was in the, the papers as well that she'd recorded this song. Uh, now, I've got the digital version of it here, yeah. which I recorded from the 78 for her funeral last year. And I realised, although I was aware of it, I had, hadn't heard it because, well, we didn't have a 78 player. No. You know, after the early 70s, I don't, they, they didn't really have it on the, you know, on record players anymore. It was just 33 and 45, wasn't it? So you knew it as an object, but you'd never heard it. That's right. I'd never played it because I was told, because it, it wasn't amazing vinyl, that you could, it would only stand up to two or three playings and then it would start to deteriorate and would skip, yeah. you know. So when I'd recorded it onto digital, I thought, I hope I get it right, because I hadn't really done that before. I hope I get it right first. Now. I'll just play a few seconds oh, of do, this do, anyway. Yeah. Um, Yes, there's a, so there's a little bit of it. So, oh, it's beautiful. Yes. God, that's gorgeous. Yes. And actually, the quality is really good. It's pretty good, isn't it? Oh, did you have to touch it up much? I didn't at all, no. I was amazed. 
There must be some inbuilt compression or something on the uh, the mm. software that I used. I even like the occasional little click. Yeah, yeah. It places it in its time. Absolutely, yeah. And my mum's singing style and the, the piece that she's chosen is quite of the time. It's, I mean, it almost sounds... Wow. I mean, I did look up the piece. I think it was written in the late 20s, early 30s. Quite often, I think, particularly in the 50s, young people would be singing things that their parents liked. That's what they did, isn't it? They didn't really have Jerry Lee Lewis or anything. No. Well, there's a a salient point because my parents were (laughs) a little bit conservative, really. Although, uh, considering my dad later got into Joni Mitchell and synthesizers in the 70s, when they were younger... They didn't like rock and roll. And in fact, my mates whose parents went to school, you know, because we're all from Mm. a small area, my mates' parents remembered them as being the couple who didn't like rock and roll and were probably (laughs) a little bit square, you know. Um, And to be honest, I don't really like rock and roll. I like, um, I don't really like Buddy Holly or Elvis Presley, which is almost, you know, sort of, you know, (laughs) it's not allowed, you're not allowed to say that, are you? But I liked lots of the 60s and 70s. and, and, um, And as a result, I didn't really hear pop music until just by accident when we were painting our back room in about 1970 or 1969, and we had radio must have been Radio 1 on, and it was the charts, and that was the first time I'd ever really heard pop music because all we had on in the house was Radio 3 when I was very small. Yes. <laughs> so I kind of I kind of uh, rebelled a, a, a bit, I guess. But um, more about my mum, really. Mm. Uh, she was a teacher like my dad. So did she have ambition when she was younger to not be a teacher, for example, to be a singer? I think she may have done, but I think... You know, being from a working-class background, Mm -hmm. uh, you know... But it's quite something to step forward in those circumstances. You say, who wants to record their voice? And you go, me, I do. It is, yes. And it does, um, you know, it's an attractive audacity that she must have had Mm -hmm. at that age. And um, I've still got the little clip of of her looking very happy that she's uh, sung this song and getting having her photograph taken. (laughs) Uh, And uh, I think think she was... um, adored by her parents she was you know a really smart young woman and um you know learned to play the piano read music sing well took part Mm. in stuff um it was that age i think where you were you got out and you did stuff you did amateur dramatics and things like that and that's one of the things that that was the first time i went to a theater was going backstage was when my mum was doing a Gilbert and Sullivan, oh yeah, which you know lots of people did, and uh, I found it fascinating going and seeing people in makeup and strange <laughs> costumes and all that kind of thing. Because I, I uh, there was a couple of nights where I dished out lemonade and things to uh, yeah. the punters. So uh, <laughs> I can just see your mum. I can just picture her. Uh, tripping over rocky mountains, in rivulets <laughs> and fountains. Yeah, she she loved Gilbert and Sullivan. She knows, uh, you know, and she would often burst into song. Um, she would quote whole bits, and, and and after a bit, it'd be like she'd be going on for two minutes, you know. And, and I'd still go, <laughs> Mom, I think we got it, now. got it now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> la, 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 la. So, um, yeah. And so uh, she was a great teacher. I think she taught her kids. Uh, Music as well as being, and she was in a junior school, but she also she was a great music teacher because 
She used to come down once a year and stay with me and go to, um, God, I've forgotten the name of the shop now, on uh, Charing Cross Road, the, the big uh, bookshop. Foils. Yeah. And go on to the, the third, I think it was the third floor where there were tons, it was just all music. Yeah. And she would sit there for maybe a couple of hours and, you know, who knew how many millions of musicals <laughs> there have been written and also for kids. And she'd find something that was really quite peppy and exciting and take it back to school and, and do a, a production. She did that sort of couple wow. of times a year. Oh, my word, she sounds like she was fantastically fulfilled. Yeah, fulfilled and very committed. Yeah, and when you have somebody who, there's that regret of, oh, it didn't quite happen for me, and I end up as a teacher. I remember teachers like that who were really bitter about it. Yes. But actually, the ones who loved it were just so inspirational. So it's a, it's a marvellous thing to have done, I think, with your life. Yes, I agree. And, you know, we all owe who we are and where we are to some mentors in our lives and mm-hmm. more often than not they're teachers yeah and I have some of those but I think just on reflection that I wouldn't be who I am without my parents obviously <laughs> uh, but uh, you know I you just appreciate as you grow older how or I do with my parents uh, how lucky I am that they were kind of stable and and unusual people mm. and how nourishing they were and, uh, you know uh, I'm not saying I was a kind of Cosseted little mummy and daddy's boy wasn't. We didn't really have that relationship, but um, no, no. But you, what you're saying is that from this uh, extraordinary parents, they produce the genius that is you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I, I was coming to that, of course. But, um, but um, yeah, to to have um, just held up a few signposts for me yeah. um, and to, to things that I. I did take to... I mean, I think they did have huge ambitions for me as well. My dad wanted me to play. I play, used to play a violin. I play a few instruments, but I used mm. to play a violin. And he wanted, really wanted me to be at a front desk at a, at a you know, a, a big orchestra. And I, I knew that wasn't going to happen. But, um, you know, I appreciated the, uh, the ambition. But Well, in fact, the belief quite often. Yeah, absolutely. And then you think, yeah. well, if they thought I could do that, I can do anything else. Why not? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think those people, they are incredible because they're coming from, well, somewhere where they really shouldn't succeed. They shouldn't have done anything with their life. And they did. Yes. People from that generation and during that period, it was the first time, I think it's to do with the labour movement as well, the first time uh, that people took a step up out of their entrenched roots and mm-hmm. and sort of broke out of them Um we're sort of used to it now, so that somebody can come from somewhere. I mean, and, and certainly in the 60s, you know, being either a football star mm-hmm. or a pop star was the way out for working class people. But yeah. but now that's expanded, I think. And people can see a, a way to get out of a kind of, uh, a, a, you know, what might be just a tough life. And, and of course, everybody has to work at some level. But But if you have an ability, you know, you can... Well, I say that, and of course, everybody's saying now that it's very, very difficult for um, for people to get into drama schools, for example. I mean, for me to get into a, a drama school uh, was quite tough in the 70s. I mean, uh, I literally 
had to get an overnight train to London because it was at, turn up at uh, Swiss Cottage at 10 o'clock in the morning. It's like, <laughs> but I live 270 yeah. miles away. Hello. <laughs> get your butler to drop you off. Yes. <laughs> yeah. As, and one of the uh, one of my trips down, I uh, it was snowing in the northeast and I literally had Wellingtons on. And when I got to London, it was dry and sunny. And I was going, can you tell me where I get off at Swiss Cottage, please? <laughs> you know. Thank God for Saturday night, Sunday morning. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I think it's really lovely to have that recording of your mum, particularly as a thing that you can listen to and you hear her youth, which is, I think is just wonderful. When you have something of your parents that reminds you of them, but it reminds you of them at a time you didn't even know them. Absolutely. Yeah. And also the, the song was called When All Was Young. Uh-huh. But, yeah, I thought let's appreciate the young person, because we just think of the whole life at a funeral mm. um, and and we, we we feel sad or sorry for the, the later years yes. where people maybe suffered. Um, so, yeah, I think that's the, the right way to go. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Everybody at some point has been young and vibrant. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. that's a thing to celebrate. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, how lovely. Yeah. We'll put that into the time capsule and I'm definitely going to put it at the end of this recording. So look forward to that, everyone. Oh, lovely. Jeremy, it's been really lovely to talk to you and I wish you every success in your in your fantastic career. As you get older, people are appreciating your talents more and more. Yes, oh, that's very kind of you, Mike. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my Emmy-nominated guest, Jeremy Swift. Hopefully you've subscribed to this podcast and will be notified every time there's a new one to listen to. If not, then you can do it on the podcast player you're listening to this episode on. Please rate the show before you leave us, and if you really enjoyed it, then you can support us by writing a review on some podcast providers, well, certainly Apple, if that's the one you use. It really helps a podcast to grow, having personal recommendations from listeners, so many thanks if you find the time to do that. You can find out what's happening and who's coming up by following me or my time capsule on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook. And the theme tune, which you can hear playing in the background, was written by Pass the Peas Music. It can be downloaded in full on Spotify, without me talking all over the top of it. This was a cast-off production. The producer was John Fenton Stevens. Thank you very much for listening. I'll leave you with a recording of Jeremy's mum, Sylvia Swift. Bye. Thank you.
Oh, <laughs> 